you so much for indulging us once again. No, no, <laughs> you, it's uh, my pleasure. You are a saint. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> yeah. uh, the first book was awesome. The second book, I'm not saying this as a compliment. Uh, the compliment would be thank you for writing the book. But this mm. is a fact. It was a big punch in the gut. Like how awesome... <laughs> I mean, how much information you packed in this? I mean, I, I have, we have to read it many times, obviously. And this time, like, read one chapter and just keep going at it. But it was impressive. That's all I can oh, say. Thank you. I don't that's, know. Uh, it's very kind. Yeah, I, that's true. It's, it's true. <laughs> I, at this time, I was, like, reading it. I was reading the audiobook. I was reading the, you know, the, the actual written copy thing. Mm -hmm. And I was writing down question i was like okay we have to talk about specific things this is not nice. just a general listening and i'm gonna ask questions <laughs> about it because uh yeah you you took us on a trip it was awesome oh i yeah. i appreciate that yeah i i i've talked to a couple of people close like really close friends that i i asked to read through the manuscript before it got published and i and and they came back and everybody has said essentially the same thing like two is that like the sequel is better than the the original, um, which makes sense to me because volume one was sort of a I don't want to call it an afterthought because it it wasn't an afterthought necessarily, but you know the the main four topics that I covered in there uh, slavery and the Book of Daniel and uh, the, did Moses write the Pentateuch and the prophecy of Tyre I had done videos yeah on each of those. And so I had these scripts that I'd done a lot of research to, you know, to, to put the uh, videos together. And I thought I'll, I'll bring these into a book. So volume two, that was much more intentional. Yeah. Uh, so I think it allowed it to come together maybe in a, yeah. a better way. But yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would say volume one, it's like, you know, you hold someone's hand. Volume two, you open the door and you walk right in. Okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I was going to use a metaphor that would be it that's fair that's fair yeah <laughs> let's dive yeah, right yeah. in uh let's awesome. start with jericho so what's the situation with jericho so i i noticed something you know with the whole walls of jericho it seems like a theme in this uh mentality of the abrahamic sects and stuff because like you know in islam too they have uh i guess they borrowed the same fantasy of like the walls of uh what do you call it uh Ist you know uh Constantinople, like it was the okay. same story with you know, these small people. We're gonna go there and we're gonna, you know, chant the name of God and we will make the walls go down. And mm. the same thing in the Quran. So it seems like a theme. Is it like a mm. what do you call it? A trend back then? You know, that's oh. their way of trending yeah. things. And how exaggerated is the whole Jericho wall stuff? Yeah. So I I think um, so. I can't speak to Islam uh, just because I haven't I haven't done any yeah. real research into it. Um, but one of the things that was true about cities in Canaan uh, through the third uh, and, and second millennia, at least the first half of the second millennium, is that they had defensive fortifications, right? They had um, massive walls. Oftentimes they had just massive architecture. And uh, so when during the third millennium in many of these major cities like Jericho, uh, they, they, you had defensive walls that were built up around the city and there'd be either a fire, you know, some sort of destruction would, would bring them down and then they'd rebuild them. And very often they'd rebuild them, um, 
you know, thicker. And that's, that's how it was at Jericho. So initially, uh, in the third millennium, they had like two, a wall that had 2 million bricks in it, I think. Uh, and then that one got destroyed and then they built it up even bigger. And there was like a, like a, a wall and then an exterior wall with the space in between. Um, so it was, a, 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 in other words, you know, this was an area where, if you think about where Canaan is situated, if you're going to go in, if you're going to go from anywhere in the south, like Egypt, for example, and you're going to go up into Mesopotamia or Turkey or anywhere else up there, you have to pass through the southern Levant. You have to go through Canaan in some way. Uh, there are two major highways, the King's Highway and the Way of the Sea. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, having these outside of just your neighbors, you know, giving you yeah. problems. Uh, you know, you, th these defensive fortifications, I think, were not only practical, but they were, you know, also, uh, I think, probably prestigious, you know, had some sort of prestigious, um, you know, value to them. So at any rate, this is what I think you see so often in sites in Canaan. Uh, but then by the late Bronze Age, you know, Egypt's in control of Canaan. And so uh, they're not going to let these cities have these massive fortifications because it's, you know, it's under their control. You've got, you know, military uh, leaders that are situated in Canaan itself. And so during this period of the late bronze, like you, you just don't have many city walls. You don't have many fortifications. Um, but I think that what the storyteller is doing when they're talking about, you know, in the book of Joshua, uh, bringing these walls down is that there, there, there's a memory in that area and you can see it in the ruins themselves uh, of these massive fortifications that had been there. And, uh, you know, just sort of utilizing that memory um, to to recreate or to solidify the story that, one, you know, they're telling about their history. Um, so I think that's probably what's going on, at least to some degree. Yeah, I mean, uh, what, I dis what, what I noticed is seems like a, in the book takes down a little bit of the fantasy because, you know, for a while we all live with this fantasy of like the antiquity stuff when you hear like massive walls, you know, it's like fortification. Everybody has in the, the collective imaginary, there's like, awesome stuff maybe physically if you see it it's like it was today's time will be built by some villager kind of like you know something not as impressive as described i mean i so if if you go online and look at the ziggurat at or at the city of or uh that's pretty impressive it's a pretty impressive feature and of course you know like the the pyramids are um you know, impressive. So I don't want to take anything away from them um, and say that these these fortifications weren't significant. They, they certainly were, um, probably not by today's standards, right? I mean, obviously, you know, with technology that we have, we could build things bigger. But um, I also, you know, just this sort of a, an aside, uh, one of the things that happens so often on our channel is people will come on and comment and say, no, that, you know, the, the, the pyramids, for example, had to be built uh, by aliens because, you know, we don't know how to do that today. And it's like, okay, so if, you know, white people today can't figure out how to do it, that <laughs> must mean in the past it was aliens. Like, yeah, come on. I, I, consider, um, I consider that, you know, generally this whole theory is like an insult to the human, you know, ingenuity. Yes. I mean, yeah. uh, look what we do. We keep doing stuff just because you could figure out how to did it. It's like, 
you know, there's yeah. no miracle. Not nobody yeah. built anything on this planet, but just a bunch of humans doing stuff. And think about, uh, I know this is a major aside, but I mean, think about the dumb shit that we keep doing, right? <laughs> so, th- I mean, anytime I talk to a Christian apologist about slavery, it, this is the thought that I that goes through my head because it's like, guys, the same arguments, the same apologetics that you're using to defend slavery in the Hebrew Bible, you could use them for slavery in the antebellum South. Yes. Like, no wonder we're like, every people are afraid that you're going to, these people are going to bring back slavery because this is why, right? Because it's the same shit. Like, it's, uh, called, it, so, it's called a pattern in the human behavior. Yes, if you look at it, it's, exactly it's just, right. a, you know, it's just a simple pattern. I yeah. mean, that's yeah, exactly speak, right. speaking of in your channel, I was going to uh, ask a small question. So how much hate did you get after this book came out? Because I was watching not, when it came out. Not much, oddly enough. Um, so I, you know, kind of going back to maybe like 2019, I think, um, I started to uh, interact with Mike Winger. If I'm sure you're familiar with Mike Winger. Um and then there was another gentleman, what do you mean? Yeah. Uh, his I, name is yeah, I know the one John, John McRae. And, you know, the, uh, a lot of the things that I wrote in volume one uh, were in response to things that they had written or published uh, in video form about slavery, about the prophecy of Tyre, about the dating of the book of Daniel. Um, and so, you know, more recently, of course, I've, I've, I've wanted to interact live um, with Mike Winger and, and what do you mean? And I, thus far, it's, you know not come to fruition. <laughs> um, but recently I spoke with uh, Derek up at Myth Vision Podcast and said, Derek, like you have a lot of connections. Yeah. Um, Dr. Kip Davis, if you're familiar with Dr. Kip Davis. I'm not sure. I, I, yeah, he's a he, he's a Dead Sea Scrolls specialist, Hebrew Bible specialist. Um, you guys should actually have him on. I think he, I would he, love he, to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, 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 we're good friends. I'll, I'll talk to him about it. But Please. Um, yeah, nice. but he's he, he's a hell of a nice guy. But he's brilliant, or and and he's brilliant. Um, but we are having a debate coming up. I think in November uh, with. Uh, I can't remember their names now. One's a pastor and one's got a PhD, I think, in like religious studies um, on slavery. And so I said to Derek, do you think you could pull some strings and get Mike Winger? And what do you mean to do like a two on two debate with me and Kip? (laughs) So he reached out and uh, to probably no one's surprise that was turned down. Um, And maybe he just doesn't like to debate. Maybe that's all it is. But Uh, um, I don't think it's they don't like to debate. Again, it's the same pattern in the Christian apologetics and the Muslim apologetics. I see some people who are like, you know, like yourself, very disciplined and they, you know, tackle academic stuff. And then everybody else on the uh, apologetic side, they always uh, refuse and come up with ridiculous reasons why they can't debate, Mm -hmm. even though on the other side, they are, you know, trashing you without uh even yeah <laughs> mentioning anything that's the thing like i don't I, I can i can understand the idea that um you know okay like this this guy has you know, like i've got a, a, a specialization of some sort you know in ancient near eastern studies um and so maybe that feels a little mismatched but that the problem that i see is that um that the reason that i'm comfortable having those debates is because i'm not i'm not pursuing a, a minority position Right. I'm not coming into this debate and saying, well, look, I have, you know, all these credentials or what have you. And now I'm going to go against someone who doesn't have the credentials, but is holding to a consensus position in the field. Yeah. 
it's the other way around, right? I'm the one that's coming and saying, look, this is just what all the academics say about this topic. And I'm I'm trying to have conversations or debates or whatever with people that are holding to fringe positions that have often have huge followings. Yeah, that's and, the surprising part. <laughs> yeah, and and so I think that um, yeah, I, I'll continue to do that that sort of thing. But you know, I, of course, I've spoken. Uh, I've had a, a, like a form of semi-formal debate or whatever, I don't know what you would call it, with uh, people like Michael Brown on the topic of slavery, who, again, is a uh, PhD in ancient Eastern studies from New York University. Um, you know, like he's very, he's obviously very, very intelligent man, and we're, we're good friends. Um, but, you know, I've, uh, I've, I've talked to people about these topics um, that have, you know, those that are similarly situated, I guess, in those qualifications. Yeah. I talked to Paul Copan about these things. But, um, yeah, I just, I, it's these big followings that I think could be very problematic. These apologists, big followings. So, uh, I think the first time I encountered like a form of negativity into the digital Hammurabi, you know, early back in the early days, it was like a neutral channel. You go there to learn stuff. And I was like, oh, cool. Mm -hmm. I didn't even expect any kind of like religious stuff because it didn't yeah. seem to have an agenda it's just like oh, we teach you this we teach you this or we talk about this it was the first time was about which i didn't know what that was and until i came to your channel about the book of daniel mm -hmm. you know you guys did a few videos or it was mentioned something like that i don't really recall you know i don't remember accurately but i remember megan it came out once, I think it was a video or post, and she was saying, uh, I think she was replying to people who suddenly came out, started insulting, why you always bring yeah. the book of Daniel. And I was like, what is this book of Daniel? What's going on? And then I started looking and yeah. I was like, ah, that's not my ex what I noticed in this channel. So yeah. that was the first time I saw that. It's, it's very frustrating, I think, uh, particularly for her, um, because I feel like my role here in on social media and in these these types of contexts is to just and both of us feel this way is to just try to get out foundational information. Right. So when you you know, when you start like at a Ph.D. program or something, uh, you're you're coming in very often with this sort of this foundational level base of information. Um, and if you don't have that completely shored up, then the first couple of years they shore it up for you. But it's, it, you know, when you when you get down to write a dissertation where you're trying to break new ground, they, they want to make sure that everybody's starting on the same, you know, like the same sure footing. Yeah. And so they go through things like, all right, let's talk about the history of the ancient Near East. Let's talk about the, you know, the Amarna period. Let's talk about the old Assyrian period. Let's talk about the new Assyrian period. And well, everybody, so everybody, you know, learns all the basics, right? All the foundational stuff. And then from that, you can start to, you know, dive into a particular corpus of text or a particular site, and you can start to come up with new ideas. That's how it works. The problem that I see is that when I got onto social media, all that foundational stuff that everybody agrees on in the field, not agreed on on social media. And so when you don't have these basic foundational things to start with, you can come up with some crazy harebrained theories, right? And, uh, you know, so in, in a, from a language sense, if, um, you know, if, you, if you're, 
if you're studying English and you don't know that the word run can take several different nuances, it doesn't have to mean like somebody sprinting across the yard. It could be like water coming out of a faucet or yeah. an engine spinning around, right? Uh, or, you know, something coming out of one's nose. Like all these things can run, can, yeah. can speak to them. But everybody knows that, that, you know, is like well-versed in English or whatever. But if you don't know that, then if you just think it's somebody with two legs sprinting across the yard, then you'll see all these other contexts, like my refrigerator is running and you'll say, oh my God, you better go catch it, right? Like, but you'll come up with these harebrained theories about what that actually means. But that's, that's the sort of stuff that happens in Christian apologetics. Um, so people will, people will begin on, on very unsure footing and then they'll build their entire system based on this to the point that they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when he tried to take the city of Tyre, uh, he laid siege to the mainland city uh, and, 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 and couldn't take it for 13 years. And you're like, oh, my God, just stop. Just, just, <laughs> just you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Um, but it's because they don't have that foundational information. So I feel like that's our role here is not to go into the tip of the spear, uh, or the breaking new ground information. It's just, look, guys, we're just going to tell you what, where everybody starts, right? This is what everybody agrees on. Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. After that, there's tons of disagreement, right? Was it, uh, you know, the, this form of the documentary hypothesis, or is it more of a supplementary hypothesis, like all that stuff, you know? European school, American school, all that stuff is debated, right? But what is it that they all agree? Well, one guy named Moses didn't write it. Ugh. Like Simple. that's all the further we need to go. Yeah. Um, I think the so. I think the other way to look at it is you you and and everyone else who does anything on social media about any topic with expertise, they're coming at their subject from the educational point of view. You're just coming to educate, right? Yeah. The other side, they're coming at it emotionally. It's like yeah. if someone makes a YouTube video and, and trying to teach you math and he's a professor of math and he did right. math for like, I don't know, 5,000 years and he's right. just teaching math. He's not, you know, he's a professional. And then right. I'm perceiving his stuff and then I'm coming at it emotionally. So that's what's yeah. happening. I think people lost the ability to distinguish the educational from yeah. the agenda, from the people who are just opinionated yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. And I guess, you know, uh, unfortunately, you guys get caught in the thick of the bullshit. <laughs> it's it, it's interesting that you use that because uh, yesterday, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Heathen Queen or yes, Queen of the yes. Heathens. Yeah. Um, I so we did her, a panel. I yes. Yeah. I don't know if you caught it, but we did a, a, a live stream yesterday on her channel on Egypt. Uh, sorry, on, Egypt, on the Exodus. And uh, Dr. Mark Lucher was there, who is a Hebrew Bible specialist. And um, Dr. Kara Cooney was there, and she's an Egyptologist, brilliant Egyptologist. Nice. Um, and I was also there, but mostly to be quiet, because um, <laughs> they're experts in their fields and this stuff. But, uh, you know, one of the things that happened on that panel is that if you were an apologist coming to that, you'd be coming with your notepad ready, right? And you'd be ready to document all the places that oh, you yeah. disagree because you, you assume that it's going to be like some big attack. Um, but the reality is, uh, you know, there were several times on the panel where we were like, you know, uh, we don't we don't really even deal. Like Dr. Cooney was like, look, <laughs> we don't really even talk about the Exodus in Egyptology, right? 
if you want to talk about it, that's fine. And we can think about it from a very nuanced perspective. But nobody's coming out and saying, oh, those dumb fundamentalists, you know, they don't know what they're talking <laughs> about. Like that, because that's not that's not what she's about, right? She's saying, okay, what 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 can we say? Um, and so it's it's vastly more nuanced than people want. But when you and I said this on the panel, when you start with your conclusion and then back into the data points, back into the data, that's where you have your problems, right? Because this is what's happening with so many Christian apologists uh, that I see. They, they start by, okay, this, this biblical text is the inspired and errant word of God. And in some way, if you're more progressive, or in every way, if you're more fundamentalist, the, the, uh, the data has to be historically reliable whatever that means for you. Um, and so when you when you do that, when you begin with that presupposition or with, with that conclusion, or all this stuff has to be accurate in some way, then all you're doing is you're backing into the data points to make them make sense, as opposed to collecting all the data points and saying, okay, what model best accounts for all of these data points? Yeah. They have their model, and now they're just trying to fit the data points into it somehow. Uh, and that's incredibly problematic. Well, I have two main big questions I want to dive in, but let me see if Tim, I think he has questions for you too. Jump in because... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> my questions kind of float towards the end, uh, to be completely honest. Um, but I am uh, more curious on the archaeology ar portion of this. Um, so I know archaeology, you know, you're digging for... Uh, um, Obviously, the ground and whatnot, but I was kind of wondering. Um, I don't know how expertise you are in this, but I feel like you probably have a better idea. Um, does anybody like well, I know people have like in the ocean, basically, like archaeology digs in the ocean? Um, I just want to kind of know like how advanced we are in that because I know there's still like a, a plethora of the ocean we haven't uh, actually looked into. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, certainly that that does uh leave any area of, of expertise of mine. What I will say is that one of the things that um, you know archaeologists do is when they dig down, and you you know you could do this anywhere that people have lived for a long period of time. Actually, I was watching uh, that show Futurama. <laughs> you guys are familiar with, yeah. Um, I was actually watching that yesterday, too. <laughs> <laughs> and they were uh, Bender and uh, Fry were were walking past this excavation site that where this big excavator was digging stuff up out of old New New York or something, and they you know, dug down and pulled up a bag of old potato chips, <laughs> and then dug down again and pulled out a VW Bug. Right. Well. That's yeah, you know, that's true to form, right? As as people live at a place, their refuse, uh, you know, their, the the material culture that they put off, we could say, uh, so pottery or trash or anything um, goes down, right? And and uh, if you you know you, you could have like a trash pit that they might they might dig and put trash in there, or it just falls on the site itself, but then it gets covered up. Right. And then you continue to build up and up. So what that means is when you when an archaeologist digs down, um, if you dig a square hole and then you, you, you know, maybe it's six feet tall and you go down into that hole and look at the wall, what you will see are these strata, right? these 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 layers, one on top of the other. And they call them occupation layers. Um, and so then you look at what's inside each strata. Uh, stratum, and you see, okay, here's pottery that 
you know, dates to this particular period, or, you know, here's a, a something that, that, that has a, a date on it, like a, a cuneiform tablet has a date on it or something. But that's how, you know, a, a lot of archaeology is done is just working through these different occupation layers, these occupation strata. Um, so when you think about the ocean, uh, again, I'm just thinking of the ocean floor, uh, and they do this sort of thing with ice cores, uh, they'll dig down and and with ice, for example, they'll, they'll dig down and pull out a huge like core of ice. And the same thing happens with it. They can see the individual layers in the ice uh, and they can you, you can look through and see because there's a there's a you know, during the year, there's a freezing and then there's a melting and then there's another freezing and it creates this layer and things get trapped in it like pollen spores or and again, I'm, I'm outside of my my area here, but they can tell a lot, for example, about um climate change by pulling these ice cores. And the same thing is true, I would I would suspect, uh, of the ocean floor, right? Sediment falls, sediment settles. It's obviously not like an occupation, like people aren't living down there. But, um, you know, you can see different plant life uh, or different, uh, you know, um, um, animals that, that get trapped in those layers or die in those layers, whatever. And as they dig down, they can see the different strata and, uh, you know, determine things about, okay, well, during, you know, this 500 year period or this million year period or whatever, uh, there was this climactic event that took place. Cause you can see the settlement or you can see the, the pollen settles down about like, fuck, I, I don't know exactly, you know, what they'd be looking for, but that's the sort of thing that I would imagine they do. But, you know, obviously, nobody should quote me <laughs> on that. Uh, it's yeah, they're getting more specialized at it. I assume, you know. Yeah, uh, no doubt, no doubt. So let's hit one bit. To me, it was a big one: uh, the hyperbolic argument. Yeah. So <clears throat> this hyperbolic is like a very problem, big problem. Okay, so who decides what's hyperbolic, what's not, and uh, who gets the uh, what do you call it? The honor of being, you know, uh, granted this hyperbolic thing. I mean, I can write yeah. a bunch of bullshit. I mean, yeah. uh, how much, who decides and how much would decide, uh, give me, is my shit, half of it is hyperbolic, the other half, and which one? Yeah. And so how does that work? So, because uh, that's yeah. a big cornerstone that we can all sit, and forgive my uh, language, we can all sit and shit on it, because yeah. the arguments <laughs> end there. It's like, you're yeah. saying you're hyperbolic. How did you decide that? Who gave you the authority 5,000 years after? Who wrote the text? So right. did you get a, an assignment on that? Or Right, right. Um, so there, there are a couple of things here, I think, to unpack. Um, for those listening that maybe... Um, <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. Don't know what we're talking book. about. Read the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are two main arguments that Christian apologists will use when confronted with divine commands of violence and genocide in the Old Testament. So, you know, Yahweh making the command to go kill everybody, including infants. Um, so the, the first one, and I think this one's probably more common, is, well, they were really, really wicked people, right? And, and so they deserved it. And that will go in all kinds of different directions, because then you'll say, well, what did the babies do? Right. Yeah. Uh, if we're going, if we're coming at it from this more fundamentalist approach, and you're saying that this actually happened, and whatever, uh, the, what is it that the, the the infants did? Since we know that infants can't like do this sort of willful yeah. sin, uh, they don't have the, the 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 cognitive ability to do that. 
Um, well, then an apologist will very quickly come back with, well, God knew that they would grow up to be like real wicked people. And so, you know, instead of uh, letting them grow up and do wicked things and go to hell, he was my, really merciful. My, minority and, report. So that's a very common one. And, and again, I think uh, we, we, we address that, I think, pretty well in the book. But the other one um, is this hyperbole. and. Uh, so they'll say things like, "Well, you know, if you know, if if you're sitting at the uh, the water cooler and say, boy, the Vikings really slaughtered the Ravens in the game last night, um, you know, the other person doesn't conjure up pictures of dead bodies all over the field, right, having been murdered, you know, or killed in battle. We understand that to be hyperbolic language, in the same way that I'm so hungry I could eat a horse." Um, and this is just the way they wrote in the ancient Near East. Um, okay, so the 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 response to that, or maybe the answer to that is, did they use hyperbole in the ancient Near East? Yes, of course they did. Uh, I gave an example in the book of uh, Sennacherib, a Neo-Assyrian king, who talks about how he laid waste to Hirimu, the city, and uh, like left no one alive. But then like in the next phrase says, <laughs> and I reorganized their district and set the people, you know, in, like- I no, thought wait, they were wait. all dead. <laughs> like, hey, wait, wait a second. Um, so do they use hyperbole? Yes, of course. I mean, this is this, th these are, like if you read through Neo-Assyrian royal inscriptions like Sargon and his eighth campaign, uh, he talks about how he picked up his chariot uh, and like ran ahead of his army and like busted through the mountaintop single-handedly because his army was slowing him down. Like, is that hyperbole? Yeah, <laughs> of course, right? Like, but um, but John Collins, who is a actually here's his book right here. That's very fortuitous. Nice. Uh, his introduction to the Hebrew Bible. He's up at Yale. Uh, brilliant. Hebrew Bible scholar. Uh, I had him on a couple of years ago to ask him about this particular topic. Like, what do you what do you think about the hyperbole thing? He said, did they use hyperbole? Yes. He said, they killed a lot of people and they claimed to kill more. <laughs> I mean, that's a really good way of saying it, right? So when these kings, uh, or yeah, like in, in real life, when they actually went out and killed the enemy, they did a lot of things that we would look at today and say, that's atrocious behavior, right? And then they claimed to have killed more than they actually did. So where it actually gets you is, is actually a little tricky to me. So if you go read through Paul Copan's work, he'll say things like, oh yeah, this is just hyperbole. And you say, okay, let's, let's take that. For the sake of argument, let's say that this is a hyperbolic um, passage here. Therefore, what? Right, because the way that he views the text and the way that these apologists view the text is this shit actually happened, right? <laughs> um, so Joshua did go in. So if it's hyperbole, fine. What actually happened then, Paul? And what he would say is, well, they drove a lot of people out from the country, right? They drove them out. And uh, yeah, they, they sure, they killed a bunch of people, right? But that, but but they didn't kill that, and it wasn't everybody, right? They just killed a bunch of people. And, and at that point, I would want to stop and just sort of stare at the camera <laughs> you know, and say, okay, so say that back to yourself. 
right? And and the example that I'd like to use now is you guys seen uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, oh, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. yeah There's yeah. a scene where, and I'm going to murder this, and I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> uh, I think it's the orcs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sar- Saruman has the, the orcs with the big white ha- print on their heads or on their helmets or whatever. And there's a scene where the orcs are let loose on Rohan. Yeah. And uh, the, the two kids are being strapped up to the horse. And the mother is like getting, go, go to the fortress, you go to protect, whatever. And as they're riding away, this, the, the shot like pans to the village and the village, you know, off in the distance by the water. And these villages are burning. Now, if you can watch that and then say, well, look, all they did was just was just drive them out of their cities. I mean, and sure, they killed a bunch of them, but they just drove, they drove them out, right? If you can watch that scene and then say that to me, I don't want you over my house, right? Like, like, you are not welcome, right? Uh, and, and so that's part of this issue with the hyperbole is that therefore what, my guy? Like, what's your argument now? So they killed a bunch of people. They drove out a bunch of people, just not everybody. And that now makes it okay? Like, I don't understand. Well, in, in, so, the, in the context, forgive me, in the context of no, sure. uh, historical stuff, it's okay because back then people all they all practice what do you call it self glorifying uh yes. you know uh, histories like oh we did this awesome things you know they all civilizations do it that's great that's just history now today these people uh, the dangerous part is like they're taking this and giving it like you know this actually happens and we should take mm-hmm. this as an example and do it now you decided to uh what do you call it grant yourself the hyper- hyperbolic situation Right? Would you grant the yeah. same thing in the text of, let's say, the Muslims, in the text, yeah. let's say, of the Aztec? Uh, yeah. I don't know, uh, the Zaradists, you know, Zaratustrians. Uh, do you, would you, uh, the Chinese? Uh, all these religions around the world, just you name it, thousands. So how you gave yourself that right to interpret in your text? Would you give them the same thing? You read something ridiculous, yep. and I mean, would you use it to attack them, or would you use it to? Uh, so who decides? That's that's the interesting and, point. And this is this is where I think people just don't follow through on their arguments, right? They don't go to the end. Um, and I'll, I'll give another example of this. Uh, there is a quote in uh, there, there's a commentary on the Book of Ezekiel by uh, a scholar by the name of um, Daniel Block, and brilliant two volume commentary on Ezekiel. It's just it's it's a wonderful. Uh, a wonderful work um, for the most part. But Daniel Block has theological presuppositions, right? He has commitments. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, there's uh, this metaphor that's given about Yahweh and Israel. And Israel is this wife that is, uh, you know, cheated, committed adultery on Yahweh, her husband. And it's a very violent chapter, right? It's something that what Yahweh does metaphorically, uh, to Israel would be unacceptable today, I would hope. Um, and and yet, that violence is in many ways excused or apologized for um, by, uh, by uh, these, these like biblical scholars that have these Christian theological commitments. And so Daniel Block has a, a, a comment where he says, uh, essentially, 
look, we can't just read this text by itself. Anytime we're looking at Yahweh doing these sort of violent things to his wife, to the woman, we have to view it through the lens of his grace, which, Hmm. you know, brings up a little bit of vomit into my mouth. <laughs> I already um, I already vomited and took it back in. I was yeah. just trying to be polite in a video, not to uh, show you guys. That. But like that but the problem is that people don't realize that, that there was somebody that made a comment in one of the uh, the videos I did an interview on. They said, "Oh, you know, Josh must not he he must, he's either uh, intentionally misrepresenting what Block said, or he just hasn't read it or understood it. And so he puts the whole quote in, right? Like a paragraph and a half. And if you go read the quote that he puts in, you're going to go, uh, yes, that's what I'm saying. And the fact that you're not picking up on it is frightening to me. Because what he's saying is essentially this. Uh, I give this example in the chapter. If if I grew up in a household, or if you grew up in a household where if someone interrupted someone else while they were speaking, that the person that got interrupted would go over and punch the person that interrupted yeah, in that. the face, <laughs> right? Punch them right in the nose. Um, that that would become the norm, right? So what what happens? Cause and effect, right? What happens when someone interrupts? Well, they get punched in the nose. That then becomes the just punishment, right? Or the just reaction um, for if someone interrupts. So then if you do that in your household for 18 years, whatever, you go out into the world and you're sitting there at the, you know, the cafeteria table at college and your buddy interrupts you and you reach over and bop him in the nose. Um, and then you find yourself in a jail cell. You'll be asking like, what the hell? What did I do What's wrong? going on here? Right. What did I do? All I did was what I was supposed to do when that happened. Um, and somebody might say to you, why in the world do you think it's appropriate if somebody interrupts you to punch them in the nose? You say, well, that's that's what you get. What do you mean? That's what you're supposed to do. This is how people come to the Bible, right? I, I, I did it too, right? You grow up reading these texts and you think, oh, oh <laughs> there goes Israel worshiping another God. They deserve now to be slaughtered, right? They deserve this other country to come in and massacre them until they repent of that. That's just what you get. If you worship another God, you get killed, right? Well, you know, coming back and being on this side of that, you go, whoa, now, whoa, buddy. (laughs) Is that really the right thing? Uh, Why is it that all these people are being killed while they worship the wrong God? Like, wait, now that does that, but see, that's what they do. So this quote that he put in the text was, look, Israel was worshiping other gods. Israel was committing adultery. That's why Yahweh did it. And you're like, yeah, that's my point. Well, that's that's not good. (laughs) That seems to be a a very, what do you call it, defining trait or a signature of the Abrahamic situation. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, it it goes all around from the source to, you know, the other bastard children of the whole situation. Like in Islam, the same thing. It's literally the same uh, attitude because it's just ingrained. It's because this, you know, you grow up, you see a Jew, you must hate him. That's it. Yeah. No questions asked and just wait until like yeah. near the end of days and you get to kill him. All right, great. Yeah. The same thing. Why? Because. So they yeah. they do that. But the hyperbolic thing, I think, if I understood it clearly, but it's pretty simple to understand. It should end any debate. Yeah. And I the, the problem with hyperbole, I think, 
is is twofold. One, what we've talked about, right? And and that is that let's assume that hyperbole is in the text that we're describing. Um, does that really get you out of it? Right? Does that really? Do, can you really lie down at night? Would you be okay with someone coming to slaughter you or drive you out of your home, and say, "Oh, well, I mean, you know, this is just this is just hyperbole. They didn't actually genocide us, right? It's just uh, it's driving us out of us, so it's okay, right? Does that really do it for you?" But the other problem with with uh, this hyperbole defense is that, and I, again, I say this in the book as well, I, there's a reason I don't give my four-year-old a hammer, <laughs> right? And the reason yeah. I don't give my four-year-old a hammer is because everything becomes a nail instantly. <laughs> when you give him a hammer, everything's a nail. And that is what the hyperbole argument has become for apologists. So anywhere there is a troubleson passage, go to 1 Samuel 15, up oh, hyperbole. Josh, just hyperbole, right? Whew, Don't take it too seriously. One, okay. Relax. It's not real. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just it, hyperbole. It's, you know? uh, it's, prob- uh, it's biblical CGI. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. That's what I think. Um, but I, I remember I, uh, I had this debate with uh, Matt Dillahunty and I did a two-on-two debate with Stuart and Cliff Connectly. Um or actually, this might have been the one that I did with Skyler. Maybe Skyler and I did that. Um, but the 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 question of hyperbole came up. It was with Skyler. And and Stewart said, no, 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 it's just, just hyperbole here in 1 Samuel 15. It's just hyperbole, right? And that's the story about Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites down to the infants. And I remember sort of leaning forward into my microphone and saying, Stuart, Stuart, what's the hyperbole? Right? Walk me through it. What's hyperbolic here? Oh well, you know the, the 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 command to kill. That's just that's just hyperbole. It's just hyperbole. Okay, so let's 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 go with that, Stuart. So, do you mean that when Yahweh said kill all of these people down to the infants and children, that that was hyperbolic? Yes, that was hyperbolic. Great. Why did Saul get in trouble? Right, because if Saul would have understood Yahweh to have been hyperbolic when he came back, having not killed everybody. Yes. He should have been able to say, whoa, whoa, Yahweh, oh, yeah, cool your jets, big guy. Hey, hang on, hang on. I mean, that was hyperbole, right? I mean, you <laughs> didn't really mean kill all of them. Let right? me be Yahweh. Spent... No, I meant yeah. everybody. <laughs> yeah, right? So, so this is the question. When it comes to a literary... When it comes to a literary device like that, you have to ask the question in the specific narrative, tell me what the hyperbole is. Because it... If you read 1 Samuel 15 as hyperbole, the coherence of the narrative goes right out the window because there's no reason that Saul should have been um, uh, rejected as king. There's no reason whatsoever because he didn't disobey. In fact, he killed too many people if it was hyperbole, right? Because he killed everybody but one, you know, and that wasn't very nice. Saul, didn't you realize I was being hyperbolic? You're just supposed to kind of, you know, play with them a little bit and, you know, chase them around with a stick or something like, you know, it's just hyperbole. Um, so, yeah, I think asking the question, will the the narrative itself literarily, will it allow for there to be hyperbolic language? And the other examples that I give are, uh, the story of Ahan or Achan in uh, in Joshua chapter seven. What, you know when he uh, when he goes up when they go up to the Israelites go to fight the city of Ai and they lose and it's because Achan has taken some of the things from Jericho. Like that requires absolutely requires 
totality, right? It's it's not hyperbolic. Don't take anything out of Jericho. Well, you know, I was just, I was just using hyperbole here, right? It's just hyperbole. I mean, take everything. I mean, it, you know, because it, it it rises and falls on the totality of that command. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's that's the question that we need to ask first. When somebody comes up with hyperbole, say, yeah, walk me through it. Go ahead, big guy. Walk me through what the hyperbole is. Um, and then if it is the case, like with something like Sennacherib, or I would say in Joshua 9 through 12, that's probably what we're looking at as hyperbole, uh, at least to some to some degree. Um, uh, as as far as uh as far as what we readers today would be taking from it. Uh, but the reality is in these stories, like walk me through the hyperbole because more than likely they won't be able to because the narrative will just fall apart. Yeah, you know what? We're in the 21st century. I think we're most of us are all, we know how to read and we know, uh, with some education, okay? And, and these texts, I think throughout the years have been exaggerated and made into like this mystical shit and it requires volumes of explanation. Sometimes the language, most of the time, the language is straightforward, you know? Like, like in the Bible, like in the Quran, it, when someone tells you, okay, find them, corner them, and then fucking kill them. It's very straightforward command. I mean, we're, I, I'm not going to have a PhD and write three books just to like, it's not poem. Yeah. You know, a lot of them are yeah. specific, straightforward. Can we just, you know, skip the bullshit and say, okay, this is what it is. Okay. Uh, your wife disobey you, beat her up. It's a straightforward, you, you know, it, it says it, it's right there. I don't need the, uh, to write the 10 series volume trying to explain how gently or like metaphor. It's not a metaphor. Yeah. It's obvious, and, you know? And that's the thing. So, so here's the thing, and I'll, I'll just be very brief about this. Like, I think that if something like Christianity is going to survive um, in, in modern times, this is just my opinion, so nobody should, nobody should like quote me on this. Uh, outside of it just being my opinion, uh, I think that as as religion has done for the thousands of years that we know about it, it must adapt. And what Christianity is going to have to do is it's going to have to say, okay, look, we realize that this is not an inspired, inerrant text as we've understood it to be in evangelicalism for all these years. Um, this is This is a product of people people of the time writing down what it is that how they interacted with the divine and in doing so they will begin to look at it much like they look at the epic of gilgamesh because if you read the epic of gilgamesh and you don't think this is an inspired text by aya or something right um you just think of it as a as a piece of beautiful um literature uh in uh, from the ancient years from its time then you 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 quickly do away with all of the things that don't speak to your modern sense of morality, right? And what you do is you become, in a very good way, I think, um, you you sort of do the whole rake and shovel, right? You you rake in the good stuff that 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 speaks to you and that informs your already established moral and ethical position, and you shovel out the bad, right? So when you read through. Um, the Anzu myth, yeah, you 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 rake in the stuff like brave Ninorta. He keeps trying, and he he does everything that he can to win, and uh, and he's he's bold, and he's trying to do the right thing, and all this stuff. You, you kind of shovel out all the bad shit, right? Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> and and the same with the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? Okay, so we're not going off to the Cedar Forest to kill this creature. 
you know, essentially cold blood. No, we're, you know, what what we can do is we can, what we can rake in is, you know, Gilgamesh was scared and his friend Enkidu really helped him, you know, and they, and then, and then, and then Gilgamesh and Enkidu helped each other and they, you know, be brave and be bold. And, and these are things that we can do. We should, when we have challenges in life, we can, we can be brave as well. And we can help our friends be brave. Sure. Great. Right. It's this very much reader response theory of interpretation. This is the way that I think uh, if religion is going to survive or if Christianity is going to survive, it's going to do it that way, in my opinion. You know, again, who knows uh, no, how good I mean, that is. You're, you're right, because the, the Abrahamic sects are really having an existential crisis now. They are trying to cling to life. And part of the symptoms of that, which is happening in all the sides, you're aware of it in the Christian side, it's happening big time right now on the other side. It's this whole... Uh, hyperbole tactic or whatever other tactics because you know obviously we have issues so you know do you have to find the somewhat of an elegant way of practicing denial you know and and because they have to survive clinging to life right now yeah that's right so let's let me just drop on on the other one that i really also wanna this one let me let me state my case on this one because plagiarism Mm. All right, so that was like a big chapter. What I have observed, a lot of academics and serious people such as yourself, you know, when they're dealing with this, they're very elegant and polite about like using specific technical words. They understand, you know, this. And in your book, uh, you know, I discovered a new point of view. I learned how you you looked at stuff and that was great. But that does not also negate that there is a a kind of like an intellectual crime. There is some kind of thing that happens. Because if I'm in my simple way, try to uh, say this, everything you said in the book made sense and it was great, but it keeps the issue alive. Now, when you say, for example, the flood, the collective consciousness of us all on earth snaps into the, the Bible, Noah. That's all we have been you know, conditioned to know. Sure. It's all we But we have these stories, they destroyed people who actually worked like the previous uh, versions of that mm. story. No one thinks yeah. or gives a shit about, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Enuma Elish right. and all that stuff. And these people yeah. who like gave us a lot, these ancestors, yeah. them, the Egyptians, whoever else, you know, you go to Aztec, you go left and right everywhere. These people created this literature that you came later and ripped off. And that's great that you were inspired by it. There was no copyright laws, all that good stuff. That's great. You know, everybody carries from somebody else. I get inspired by you. I do something, but people know you. Now, it's right. a, it would be the same thing. Now you wrote this great book. I was inspired. I loved it like you. And then in that process of getting inspired, I start, you know, chipping away through it, taking stuff. And then suddenly a few years later, no one remembers the name of Dr. Joshua Bowen, who spent years writing this book. Suddenly right. anything that comes up for that topic, people remember my name. That's not fair. Sure. Even though, even though maybe I was not intentionally trying to rip you off, I didn't steal yeah. from you. You didn't copyright this thing. That doesn't negate the fact that some adjustment needs to bring back justice to people who actually made great contribution to this literature. Okay, this collective yeah. reaction to me is still a intellectual crime, even though yeah. technically, like you said in the book, you had different explanations. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a very fair point. Um, and this is why, uh, actually thinking back through this, uh, I think sometimes I focus on 
one uh, aspect of this, and then uh, another another chapter I clearly focus on another. Um, so when we talk about things like rape and adultery uh, in that chapter, it was a chapter six. Um, like I will call rape rape, uh, even though they may not have viewed it as rape, right? So when they look at Deuteronomy twenty two twenty eight to twenty nine, and uh, you know they look at them and say, well, that's rape. Okay, that's true. They did view that as rape. Um, but in uh, you know Deuteronomy twenty one where it talks about the captive bride, they would not have considered that rape. Um, and so, uh, but I would call it rape today. So uh, I will say very clearly that there is some inconsistency. Uh, I think I I think I'm specific about it, but uh, it, it it doesn't negate the fact that sometimes I'm focusing on what we would call X today yeah uh, or what type of behavior we would call x today and then at other times like in the plagiarism chapter i focus on what they would have thought about it um so you're absolutely right the act that um you know the writer of the flood tradition uh or the, or the flood story or even uh you know what the author of uh the enuma elish did when thinking about the anzu myth if that were to happen today that same action we would call that plagiarism. That would be a crime. You're absolutely right. Um, and so I think it's I think it's good that we keep both of those things in mind. So I appreciate you drawing that to my attention uh, because I will be very careful to say, no, the Israelites and the people in the ancient Near East would not have considered taking a captive bride to be a, a, a crime. It would not have been rape. Um, even though there was no consent involved uh, on the part of the woman, or the girl, uh, they still would not have considered that rape. We would absolutely consider that today because consent is a very big thing for us. In the same way, we would consider many of the acts in the ancient Near East, from a literary perspective, as plagiarism. But they did not because they didn't have the concept of intellectual property. And so I think that's a very fair thing to point out. And uh, it's good for us to, to keep that nuance in our mind as we go forward. Because what the, the point that I want to get across, the big point that I wanted to get across in chapter seven in the plagiarism chapter is that, uh, and we talked about it in that Exodus panel yesterday, the, the Judean scribes who are putting together, for example, parts of the primeval history, they're not dummies, right? Um, and I think so often we want to, uh, and I've wanted to do this as well, so it's not just other people. Um, you know, we, I come out of this fundamentalist evangelical background, and uh, I held the text in such high esteem, so much so that it was like I, I would have reacted incredibly strongly had somebody told me, no, your text took from you know early Mesopotamian yeah. or Akkadian texts, uh, because I would have thought, no, 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 this is this is God's word handed down on high, you know, from on high, and. So I, I understand the sentiment, um, but that also means that when I came out of it, I have this uh, tendency to have this strong reaction to it and to be able to and to, to think to myself, oh my God, like this is just, you know, you guys don't get it. They, they didn't come up with this stuff on their own. They're taking this from here and from here and from here. But the reality is that it's somewhere in between, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the, uh, the scribe that put together the Enuma Elish is absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt from modern from modern perspective plagiarizing the anzu myth there's no question about it right he's very intentionally reworking it um but uh 
And, and so that's the case also in the biblical text. There are absolutely places where they're utilizing ancient Near Eastern uh, mythologies, sometimes quite directly, and and not crediting them, right? And as you say, it leads to um, people forgetting about where they originally came from. A good example of this might be, and it's I've been trying to think about it for the past couple of minutes, um, that Leonardo DiCaprio movie, Romeo and Juliet, if you yeah. remember that from so many years ago. A while back, yeah. If for some reason uh, that story was so immense or that movie was became so immensely popular that when any anytime anybody said, do you bite your thumb at me, sir? Um, that they they thought about the gas station, you know, with those, those I haven't seen this movie in so many years. I'm so <laughs> impressed with myself, but I remember that. You still remember. But, you know, he's biting his thumb, you know, and they're crediting that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio as coming up with that, as opposed to this actually being from Romeo and Juliet yeah. with Shakespeare. Yeah. Then yes, I like, I, I'm with you. I know exactly what you're saying. And I agree. Um, I think that that's our job. And that's what we need to be doing is saying, hey, guys, the the Judean scribes that put Genesis 6 through 9 together, or, you know, that, that, that whoever it is that however we fall down on this, whoever uh, edited together the final form of Genesis 6 through 9, the, the individual sources, um, did a brilliant piece of literary work, right? But it wasn't his own. It's not like he came up with this flood story himself. He reworked it in a way that polemicized where he got it from. Um, but he is greatly indebted to uh, the the earlier stories, and we need to make sure that we recognize where it came from for any number of reasons, not the least of which is to appreciate the culture that developed it um, and to credit them with that. So I agree completely. My The reason that I think I focus in on, let's not call this plagiarism, yes. and, and from... Again, that's focusing back on their perspective and not ours. Is it's very it's very easy. And I'm I'm sort of putting this together in my head as I talk, so forgive me. <laughs> if I say uh, Deuteronomy 21 is a law that uh, endorses rape, it's much easier for a Christian apologist to take a step back and recognize. Okay, I see what you're saying. From our perspective, this would have been considered rape. Right, I think they they're they're much more likely to do that. Um, however, if you say, uh, "Oh, well, the Old Testament just plagiarized," it's very easy for a Christian apologist that's done any research into this to shut that down and to shut you dead, like to shut you off, and to say, "Ah, ah, ah, that's so unnuanced of you. This is not plagiarism. <laughs> they didn't have intellectual property. Blah blah blah. Right? They're reworking. It's a polemic." Blah, blah. And so um, if the goal of the book was to try to provide resources and ways of thinking that allow better conversations with particularly fundamentalists and Christian apologists, I think probably in the plagiarism section, that's the better approach to take, in my opinion. I could be totally wrong about that. I'm very open to that. Um, but that may be why I chose to do it that way. I'm not entirely well, sure. Well, when, when, when you said, you know, let's not call it plagiarism, that was correct because you know you were talking about technical situation. Yes, uh, today you know the legal issue is irrelevant, practically non-existent, right? That's cool. Right. And then, but you have now these thousands of years worth of like civilization and richness. All these people they created all this stuff. What is yeah. happening today, which is a today crime, 
against these people is these, uh, what do you call them? The Abrahamic trilogy sects, you know, they're hogging all the attention, taking credit for everything that everybody did. And then it's not unfair at, you, you know, a universally, it's like a cultural crime, right? Mm. At the universal scale, you know, they, they, they brainwashed everyone on the planet to forget everything yeah. before and then yeah. it's now that's yeah. that's the issue what yeah, you did in the book was correct because that's true we're dealing with technical stuff yeah there's no thing we need to correct the uh, educationally we need to yeah. correct that and bring yeah. some recognition and fairness yeah. so like you yeah. said earlier with the julio and romiet uh, uh, sorry uh, romeo and juliet <laughs> Uh, you know, when when people hear that today, they both yeah. remember Shakespeare and they remember the movie and they remember Leonardo right. DiCaprio and the director and everybody. That's right. great because we all have that, you know, recollection. So we need to bring that back too. when you say yeah. the Bible, the flood, everybody needs to remember all these things yeah. all the way, Egypt, yeah, everything. So that's that's yeah. all I'm I'm hoping for. You know. Yeah, and I think the same tr the same is true. It's just my mind's you know kind of going down that path now. Like we, I think we need to be much more fair to Judaism, for example, because if you think about uh, so many of these texts, Isaiah fifty three or Psalm twenty two or Isaiah seven, like uh, or even Jesus, even Genesis three, like Christians have seen Jesus and Satan everywhere, <laughs> right? And now all these passages. That actually have their own meaning uh, as as parts of the Hebrew Bible uh, to people in Judaism. They've been co-opted, right? Uh, and and oh no, Isaiah fifty. That's no, that's that's about Jesus. So that's about Jesus. Isaiah seven for us. That's about Jesus, right? And it's like whoa, whoa. Like every, nobody thinks about who the suffering servant actually was in Isaiah fifty two to fifty three. No, it's that's automatically you know for the most part when people hear. The suffering servant or something from that passage or uh you know that they're thinking jesus and it's like Gee, right but it's not actually <laughs> i mean it if it is from a christian's perspective who has looked back into the text and concluded interpretively that 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 actually was you know some prophecy about him but the reality is like what let's not forget who it was actually about right um that's that's and actually so, yes. that's amazing you say that because that's true you know Christianity is, is doing the same thing to Judaism ripping them off and trying to cut them off and creating a new yeah. collective kind of like instinct Islam yeah. did the same thing cut them yeah. both off ripped them both off clearly and then created this like really aggressive collective kind of memory about these stories that came way back from the you know they're completely distanced from this stuff it's amazing, just like eating each other up. So I expect yeah. nothing less of them doing to civilizations back in the days, which they turned them into evil and bad. So now, you know, every time you hear yeah. the word Babylon and you think about fucking prostitutions and stuff, that's that still bugs yeah. me out a lot. It's like oh suddenly, yes. suddenly, like I saw that there's a trailer of this new movie coming out. It's called Babylon. Literally, mm. it's called Babylon. You see the trailer of it? It's about mm. like Hollywood, I think, in the 30s. It's like okay. the debauchery town. The trailer is oh, like wow. fucking cocaine, you know, whores, ev everything you can think. It's like, you see the trailer, it's like, that's what Babylon means. It's like, we're yeah. still doing this? And that's, uh, like, see, that's what's so, that, that's so interesting to me, that, that sort of cultural memory. Perpetuating. Um, yeah, because, like, I, I, I talk about in that, in that same plagiarism chapter, um, the arc 
of, uh, and I didn't intentionally use that word there, in Genesis 1 through 11, uh, ARC, the Ark of the Narrative, uh, not the Ark, like uh, <laughs> Noah's Ark. Um, but the Ark of the Narrative in Genesis 1 through 11, I mean, Ron Hendel argued, I think, very convincingly that it's meant to be a, a polemic. The whole primeval history is meant to be a polemic against Babylon, right? And against uh, you know, Mesopotamian civilization, because the way that the, the narratives, and I know you guys know this, but just for the audience, like the way the narrative is set up for, for Babylon, for Babylonia, for Mesopotamia, the peak of human civilization is the city, right? Everything moves toward the city. So if you think about the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, here it starts off in the city with Gilgamesh as the king of Uruk. And he's like, you know, the, I mean, God, the, 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 the epic itself begins and ends with the, the walls of the city and looking down at how big it is and the parts and how amazing it is. Um, but then you get Enkidu introduced and Enkidu is this, you know, sort of like wild animal man that's out in the steppe, right? And what he starts innocent, right? He's out there innocent, wrote, you know, roaming the countryside and, and with the animals and progressively, um, Shamkat, the prostitute comes out, humanizes him, then gives him beer and bread and clothing. And where does he go? He makes his way to the city. And that's the, that arc, that movement toward the city is so fundamental and foundational to Mesopotamian literature and civilization as a whole. That's the way it's supposed to go from innocence to, you know, civilized living in a city. Um, that's the same movement that you see in Genesis 1 through 11, right? Uh, created in the garden, Adam and Eve, they're naked, they're innocent, then they get wisdom, and they're moving ultimately toward the Tower of Babel, right? Everybody coming together in the city of Babylon. Um, but the movement is bad in it's Genesis 1 through 11. The opposite. It's the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be in the garden. You're supposed to be innocent. And it's only through mistakes and evil and sin that you get to the city. And what city is it? Babylon. It's like anti-civilization, you know? Yes, and, and, right. and it that's also right. reflects that little, uh, what do you call it? Inferiority complex. You can't do it, so you insult it. They, yes. These people yeah. were telling stories. They couldn't build Babylon, so they turned it into a shithole. They couldn't, you know, build Egypt. All pharaohs are assholes. It's like just generically douchebags, straight, you know, straightforward. It's the same pattern. And that's, yeah, it's, that's just it's, not it's, good way to go about it. I just think that, you know, people people need to be honest, particularly Christian apologists need to be honest uh, with with the situation in which they find themselves, right? We're, we're at a place now where you have to sort of take stock, to, to, to step back and take stock of what archaeology has told us, what history has told us, um, and to stop fighting for, well, maybe eventually we'll find you know, some evidence that will show uh, that Tyre was actually destroyed, or maybe we'll find some evidence eventually that Daniel was written in the sixth century, or maybe we'll find some evidence that uh, Jericho was actually destroyed in the late Bronze Age, right when Joshua was supposed to have come. Like, you know, just take, I think, I think Christian apologists would do themselves uh, a great, um, you know, service if they would just step back take stock of where scholarship is today and to reformulate their thoughts. Um, because this is what, 
evangelicals have to do all the time. Unfortunately for them, I, th- I would say much to their chagrin, they have to do it. But, you know, like somebody like James Hoffmeyer said very clearly, um, look, we have to walk away from the idea that two and a half to three million Israelites walked out of Egypt in the Exodus, because we know that could not have happened. There's not that many people to have walked out. So we have to think about this differently. Now, I think his conclusion is kind of goofy, but whatever. He's at least taking that step to say that the data doesn't support what we have thought. We have to think of something different. That's amazing. Timmy? <laughs> yeah. I um, remember you saying something about, um, it really stuck to me because I saw a post about uh, something like this, um, about... You know, the Bible's just filled with violence and um, like most like Christians, I feel like they're also kind of harnessing hatred for like, uh, I think how you somewhat put it like a payday of, you know, eventually they're going to go to heaven or you know, real earth and everything to be perfect. But uh, I feel like because um, I've seen it a lot, too, where they, they harness this hatred where they they feed this violence where they want to see their enemies like, you know, burning and all this. Yes. So I post that someone said it was like, man. Can't wait till I get into heaven. I hope God lets me watch all the, uh, you know, the heathens burn in hell or whatever. Yep. And then someone posts right under is like, this pretty much sums up Christianity. Yep. Like they, they harness that kind of like hatred for it. And I, I personally feel like that's very unhealthy. Sums oh, up, is, it yeah. sums up Islam too. They actually wrote <laughs> yeah. it descriptively in their book. A lot We're going to sit and watch. <laughs> I'm just uh, glad you made that like a point in your, uh, in your book. Yeah. I, like I, when I think about, you know, the, the way this developed, arguably, is through apocalypticism. I mean, everybody's familiar with, like, the Book of Revelation uh, is sort of like the, the, the quintessential apocalyptic literature that most people know about. But apocalyptic literature, this, uh, you know, this idea, again, for the audience, this idea that um, things are going really, really bad for a particular group of people, and uh, they, they believe that their God is powerful enough to uh, you know, bring about the deliverance that they so desire, but hasn't yet for some reason. And how do they do that? Well, we have an all-powerful deity that could kick the ass of anybody, but he's not, and he loves us, but we're still undergoing all this persecution. Why? Like, what is it? Like, why is it that that's the case? And it was that this that that sort of brought about this idea of apocalyptic literature. So apocalyptic literature, again, for the audience is apocalypsis is like a revealing of something or a pulling back of the curtain of the supernatural and saying, okay, uh, yeah, in this, in the, in the way that, uh, for example, Balaam, uh, or Balaam, uh, when he, uh, is riding his donkey to go curse, uh, Israel and the, the angel is standing in the way and the, the donkey sees the angel but Balaam doesn't, and you know he won't go. And then he's you know moves to the side. Eventually, smashes Balaam's foot, and he beats the donkey. The donkey turns around and says, "What are you doing? Like, why are you beating me?" Right? And he says, "Well, but this is totally normal that a, that a donkey's talking to me. Um, <laughs> totally normal." Uh, and then God Yahweh allows Balaam to see the angel, and he did a revelation. Right, he did an apocalypsis. Uh, he he pulled back the curtain of reality to let him see what's going on in the supernatural realm. Well, in an apocalyptic uh, in, in apocalyptic literature like the Book of Daniel, for example, the reason that that's so important to the people is that they're in a position of um, 
and a weakness. They are subjected to the powers that be, but their God is powerful and they don't understand how to reconcile these things. And what happens is this, this genre develops where somebody comes along on God's behalf and says, whoa, hey guys, you don't know this, but check it out. And they pull the curtain back. And now the person that has revealed, uh, has had this, this vision or whatever, this um, dream or whatever it is that, that uh, God has revealed to him, knows what's going on in the background, so to speak, and can say to the people, hey, 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 listen, listen, I know it sounds bad right now, but God's got something in the works. Right. He's he's back there and he's fighting for us. There's this bad evil that's out there and it's warring against the forces of Yahweh and God. He's allowing it. But don't worry. Don't worry. Not for much longer. Right. Don't give up on God. God is fighting for us. He's got a plan. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. Just hang in there a little bit longer. God's going to come back and deliver us. Well, that how is it that Yahweh is going to deliver? How is it that the God of the New Testament is going to deliver? Violence, right? He's going to come back and he's going to destroy the people that have been fucking with you for all these years. <laughs> yeah. And people, I mean, I know I did as a fundamentalist evangelical, take great comfort in that because look at, I mean, I'm being called Jesus boy here in school. <laughs> I'm being beaten up all the time. Like I'm 6'2", right? But I wouldn't fight back and people would beat the shit out of me uh, because I was a good Christian. I would take it, you know, and I remember God's going to come back one day and right all these wrongs and you're going to pay, <laughs> but not me uh, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good Jesus boy. Um, but the reality here is that people start to long for that. I was, uh, I had a, unfortunately, I had a discussion with someone who you guys may know. I won't mention his name here because I don't want to give him any, uh, <laughs> any notoriety at all. But he made the comment like, oh, don't worry. When, when God comes back, uh, my foot will be on your neck. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you, you shouldn't be so excited about that, but you are. And that's the type, I think, that what you're talking about, Tim, is this, this idea of not only am I going to see deliverance, but I'm going to see justice done. And man, God is going to stick it to those assholes. I, I'm sorry, not assholes, those those bad people, right? Because Even Christians, yeah. we, don't, yeah, we don't say those things. Um, <laughs> and, and, and boy, and the problem with this, Besides the fact that it starts to, I mean, God's going to kill him. So in a lot of ways, it's pretty cool for me to hate him, right? To hate the sin, we say. But really, <laughs> we're hating the sinner. Um, but some people can't help but try to help God along. Yes, right? that's so the dangerous you, part. I mean, think about it. How many people have you heard that say, well, I mean, in Revelation, it sure as hell looks like... Um, like the temple's got to be rebuilt. Well, you can't rebuild the temple unless certain other structures are out of the way. So hmm, how can we help that along? And it's like, well, it's like a know? terrorist, you know, when they blow up a place and kill a bunch of innocent people. What do you think he's thinking? He's thinking, well, these people are yes. already sinners. They're going to hell. They are just basically yes. hell fuel. I'm just yep. helping them along into the trip. Uh, help. Yep. And I am helping God exact his revenge, right? Mm -hmm. And this is this is the other thing. Uh, I'm, like, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I put out a tweet a couple months ago that said, and you, you guys may have seen it, but it said um, 
there was a, a a man went into a place of worship and uh, through a suicide through an, a suicide act or action or something, um, he brought down the building and killed three thousand worshippers. And then I spaced down and wrote <laughs> his name was Samson. <laughs> and like that got some attention, maybe not great attention, but because in any other context, that's terrorism. Right, straight up, easy. Nobody would question that. But once you once you put that name in there, it's like, well, 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 it's well, like slavery. Right? <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, so what, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, what would you what would you call uh, you know somebody going in debt, and the other person takes that person and makes them uh, live in their house and serve them and not pay them, and they can beat them to keep them in line. What would you call all that slavery? That's okay. Yeah, but that's what we see here in Exodus. Whoa, whoa, that's bond servanthood. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the nice kind of slavery you're talking about there, Josh. Like, yeah, is it though? Is it though? Well, you know what I think? I think we uh, these books and the people who wrote them in their context of time have been, today, us, we have dragged them out of context way so much and distorted their reality. Because if you, I, I don't know if you feel that way. Those people, maybe back then, they were just through all these narratives, they were just trying to survive and, you know, yeah. make sense of their own uh, situation that was in kind of the weakness. The, you know, through literature, through art, whatever, they were trying to elevate and give themselves kind of encouragement. And I yep. think in that context, maybe it worked for them. Maybe it helped a little bit. Who knows? But I think we dragged that stuff with us way too far up here into the future where it doesn't belong. That's well, yeah. obviously, that's why it's not working. So, yeah. I mean, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that if if somebody, you know, when I was growing up, it was sort of I think it was losing some traction, certainly when my parents were growing up, um, you know, go out to the to the tree and get me a switch. Right. Uh, or, or they had a big paddle in the house or, you know, taking the belt off and beating them like this was very, very common for children. Right. Um, that was common for me. Course, I remember that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I got beat. Yeah. I, I didn't get beat that often. But there, there was a comedian, uh, Mike Warnke. No, it wasn't Mike Warnke. It was another Christian comedian years and years ago. But he said, I, I swear that when my mother goes Christmas shopping for me, she's looking for things that she can beat me with. <laughs> you know, like she's walking through the aisle and she sees a Hot Wheels track. She says, hmm, that'll hurt. <laughs> and, and he said, one day she came home with a wood burning set and I ran out. But, um, you know, th that's the that's the sort of thing that they grew up with. Right. And that some of us grew up with. But we've sort of moved past this, I think, in at least in my experience, in most circles, this is dying out, this idea of beating your children, because we realize the psychological damage that it does. But had somebody 50 years ago written a sacred text, a religious text, um, you would want to very quickly identify, hey, this was done 50 years ago, and this is they were doing what they thought was right, but we now know this is very harmful. So we don't want to whitewash it and say, ah, well, maybe they weren't really, maybe it was metaphorical spanking. No, we want to say that they were actually beating them, right? But we don't do that anymore. That's where I think more fundamentalist or evangelical Christianity goes awry because they don't do that first step. They don't look back at Leviticus 25 and say, yes, this was slavery and this was wrong, and we should not be doing this today, right? They don't do that. They say, ah, 
well, you know, I mean, how else would they survive? And it wasn't the ideal, but God's working with them. No, it's bad, right? Just say it's bad and let it be there. Let it be a product of the time. And, and don't, don't hold this idea of inspiration and inerrancy that requires you to whitewash the shit. Just say, yeah, people wrote this. People that did it wrote this. And we don't have to follow everything that they did. My God. Um, I think they're sitting on the fence about it because it's, it's a sensitive issue that relates directly to their deity. It's like if you take yeah, away anything or you modify, or you acknowledge that something is wrong, that chips yeah. away from the big statue. Yeah. I think that's what's holding everybody in that situation from, you know, I'll, I'll rather fight and argue against it, and let's keep the argument go for thousands of years, versus yeah. anyone admitting anything, and then now we lost a piece of rock from that but God. I, I, I absolutely think that the way that Christianity is becoming more progressive, at least again, this is all anecdotal, just in my experience. But I think about somebody like William Lane Craig, who I don't really have an awful lot of, I think a lot of him, but um, you know, he said apparently something recently where like calling into question this idea of like a literal Adam and Eve, um, and people had a huge problem with that. And I may be misrepresenting exactly what he said, so I apologize if I am, but um, <laughs> The, the point is that there's this, there's a progressive Christianity, right? Now, people like Mike Winger, you know, buck hard against it. But I think he's on the losing side. Um, because I think ultimately, people are going to have to say things like, yeah, evolution's a thing, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, they're going to have to say things like, yeah, there was no worldwide flood, sorry. Right? And once those things happen, there's only so much time and maneuvering that you can do before you have to say, okay, this ancient text is another ancient text, right? Maybe God used it. Maybe God used the themes and whatever of the time and to, to get his overall message across. But we can't just go slavishly applying all of these things. Even in the New Testament, we can't because, you know, if you do, I mean, we're not getting rid of slavery, right? Slavery's going to come back. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's where hopefully fingers crossed. Hopefully that's where we're headed. Well, we I would much rather have that version <laughs> of Christianity than uh, than a fundamentalist. Yeah, version. that's true. Yeah, just an anecdote to the whole Adam and Eve thing. Uh, I made a cartoon about it a while back saying like God was just sitting there playing PlayStation. The angel comes to him and says, hey, we're ready to start making humans. And God is like, hey, hold on. This sounds like a lot of work. How about we just make two and then they will just do the rest. And then the other <laughs> angel looked at him and was like, what? And the incest? <laughs> And that is, it's a repressed idea from way back when yeah. I was a child, you know, reading yeah. in the Quran, everything, the Adam and Eve. And I was like, so just two people. And then they had kids and their yeah. sisters. And I'm looking around me. It's like, I have sisters and everything. So we can't sleep with each other. But like yeah. they did. It's like I was, I couldn't reconcile that idea my whole life. And obviously now right. I reconcile that it, it's bullshit. But like for years growing up religiously yeah. you know i was practicing and that's what that's my world it's like it still didn't yeah. you know it didn't stuck the landing in my head yeah. but you know yeah. you just keep it to yourself you can't yeah. just question no, it yeah. and that was <laughs> that was a, a note well thank you so much <laughs> dr josh i don't want to hold you oh, up any course. longer i know that I was awesome yeah. it's always fun oh yeah. yeah yeah timmy any final words oh man you're doing great work um keep on doing it man
Thank you. Yeah, and we're expecting that. the third book, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, I was actually going to do um, in the interim. I was going to do a did the Old Testament endure slavery volume two. Uh, sorry, did the Old Testament endure slavery second edition, and just beef it up a lot and add a bunch of stuff to it. But I was talking to Megan last week, and I said, "Yeah, you know, let's just let's just finish the series. Let's just do volume three. I think you're I picking up steam else. with this series. I'll, yeah. my opinion, just forge ahead. <laughs> There's a. Uh, I, I will say this: I'm playing with. I had a table of contents set. I'm, I'm playing with it a little bit now, but um, I think I'm definitely gonna have a chapter on. Uh, you know, in, in volume one, there was a did most right the Pentateuch, and it was just more uh, not getting into the specifics of the documentary hypothesis or any of this other stuff. It was just, no, he didn't write it. But I think given the way things are going online, I'm going to have a chapter that says, let's look at the different theories of Pentateuchal formation in some detail so that people actually understand what the documentary hypothesis is or these other theories. Um, because there's a video that came out recently that... <laughs> <laughs> I think didn't do it justice, shall we say? Uh, so I think that'll be that'll be useful for That's everybody. awesome. Well, I'm going to wait for the third book to come out. And then once I have all three of them, I'll take mine and Tim's and we're going to ship them to you. You're going to sign them for awesome. us and then you're awesome. going to send them back. Yep. Can we do Love that? <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Josh. Of course. You have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. Thanks, guys. Bye. Take care. Man.